In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Joy of Advent, a sermon in five movements. Movement one, everything is green. My computer's desktop image is a picture of my two boys, James and Arnie, from five years ago. It's early summer, and the boys are standing together in front of our house with our magnolia tree in the background, its pink petals only recently replaced by a full canopy of leaves. Both boys are wearing long sleeves, shorts, and sandals, as well as their bike helmets. Arnie's only about two in the picture, and his yellow helmet is covered in puppy dogs. His entire face is wrinkled up, no doubt because I had probably just told him to say, cheese. James, age five, is wearing a helmet covered in yellow and orange flames. Straddling his bike and grinning, he looks like a miniature evil Knievel poised to rocket over a canyon or perhaps just jump the curb of our street. I don't take a lot of photos, but I took the boy's picture that day because I desperately wanted to remember that moment. I had just said something to them about how beautiful the leaves and the grass were, and as James pedaled off down the sidewalk, he happily cried out, everything is green. And in that moment, I was painfully aware that I wasn't just watching him race away from me down the sidewalk. It felt to me like he was rocketing into his future. And I found myself desperately wishing, praying really from the core of my being, that that happiness he was feeling in the moment would always stay with him. I knew, of course, that it couldn't be so. It wouldn't be so. But I felt an intense longing that everything would always remain green for him, an endless summer free from worry and sadness and difficulty. Movement two, on joy and grapefruit. Even though both of my boys were clearly happy that early summer afternoon, what I was experiencing in the moment that James pedaled away felt more like homesickness than happiness. It was, I think, similar to how C.S. Lewis talks about joy. Many of you will recall that in Lewis's spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he talks about joy not as happiness or fulfillment, but as a kind of deep and ultimately unsatisfied desire, an incredibly strong and even painful longing. As a boy, Lewis experienced this longing when he looked at a little toy garden, a miniature garden that his brother had made by putting sticks and twigs and leaves into a little biscuit tin. When he looked at it, it somehow conjured up in him a longing for what he says is the enormous bliss of Eden. The experience was not an isolated one. It happened when he read Beatrix Potter's story of Squirrel Nutkin and had a kind of vision of the idea of autumn. Just think about that for a minute, the idea of autumn or when he read about the death of Balder from the saga of King Olaf. Such experiences were, in Lewis's own words, desires of almost sickening intensity for something never to be described. Th this strange sort of joy doesn't show up on command, but let me share a poem with you that almost always gets me in precisely the way I've been describing. 
On the surface, at least, it's not a poem about a grand subject like the enormous bliss of Eden or the idea of autumn or the death of Balder, but of all things about eating a grapefruit. Here then is the poem, Meditations on a Grapefruit, by the late Craig Arnold. To wake when all is possible before the agitations of the day have gripped you. To come to the kitchen and peel a little basketball for breakfast. To tear the husk like cotton padding, a cloud of oil misting out of its pinprick pores clean and sharp as pepper. To ease each pale pink section out of its case so carefully without breaking a single pearly cell. To slide each piece into a cold blue china bowl, the juice pulling until the whole fruit is divided from its skin, and only then to eat. So sweet a discipline, precisely pointless, a devout involvement of the hands and senses, a pause, a little emptiness, each year harder to live within, each year harder to live without. What gets me is the poem's ability to convey the wonder of the simple act of eating a grapefruit. I love thinking about the grapefruit as a tiny basketball. <laughs> and the difficulty of living into that wonder. Yet these small blessings in life are so fleeting. About this poem, the poet Christian Wyman writes, they need not be Damascus raptures, our moments of soul. Sometimes even the simplest moments stir the deep longing of joy within us. Such desires and longings are profoundly human moments, but they also speak to something transcendent, a sense of fulfillment that is just out of reach, just beyond our ability to grasp. They are, as N.T. Wright puts it in his book, Simply Christian, strange signposts pointing beyond the landscape of our contemporary culture and out into the unknown. Wright discusses four of these signposts, or as he also refers to them, echoes of a voice. The longing we have for justice, the quest that all people have for spirituality, the hunger for meaningful and restored relationships, and the delight in beauty, even in eating a grapefruit. Each of these, Wright observes, points beyond itself, though without in itself, enabling us to deduce very much about the world, except that it is a strange and exciting place. C.S. Lewis spent his early years chasing after this experience of longing. He wanted the next fix of joy. He thought that the longing was not a signpost, but the end goal. But eventually, and this is one of the big spoilers, the big reveals of his spiritual autobiography, he realized that joy was not the target. The experience was valuable, he says, only as a pointer to something other and outer, a truth beyond the longing itself. Movement three, after transcendence. It's fitting, I think, to reflect on such longings during the season of Advent. Lewis's joy is the joy of Advent. Once again, it's not about happy feelings or a sense of fulfillment now. Advent joy is more like the joy of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, the people of God are in captivity, in mourning and exile, but somehow in the midst of it, they are invited to rejoice, 
Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. We find such longings expressed in today's psalm. As I read three of the couplets, listen for what experts in Hebrew poetry refer to as antithetical parallelism, in which the two lines of a couplet present us with contrasting images. The first line is the first couplet is an example of synonymous parallelism, and then the antithetical parallelism follows. Overturn our captivity, O Lord, as when streams refresh the deserts of the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap with songs of joy. He who goes on his way weeping and bears good seed shall doubtless come again with joy and bring his sheaves with him. Notice how both of those last two couplets mingle tears with joy, holding a people's present sorrow in tension with their future rejoicing. The psalmist understands well the longings and desires I've been discussing, but this psalm isn't simply pointing us out into the unknown, as Wright puts it, to something transcendent. What scripture makes clear, what our feelings and desires can't get to on their own, is the referent, the end of all our longings. It is, the psalmist reminds us, the Lord who will overturn our captivity. As when streams refresh the deserts of the south. And then verse 1 declares, we will be like those who dream. Our other readings for this second Sunday in Advent are full of similar pointers, human embodiments of our longing for the Lord, a mess, a menagerie of messianic messengers. First, we have Malachi, a messenger to the people of Israel, prophesying about another future messenger who will prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Then there's Paul, messenger of Jesus Christ, reminding the church at Corinth that he sent Timothy yet another messenger, to remind them of his ways in Christ. And between these two messengers, we have John the Baptist, that messenger crying in the wilderness, proclaiming that every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Malachi, Paul, and John all point us to the source and the end of all our longings, to the very center of human history, the one who made and is now reconciling heaven and earth. But this one is not some transcendent unknown. Our God is not, as theologian Karl Barth puts it, a prisoner of his own majesty. Rather, the Lord of hosts, Jesus Christ himself, is coming here to us to overturn our captivity and set things right. All flesh shall see the salvation of our God. It's the great song of redemption, echoing from one generation of messengers to the next. Get ready. The next movement of the redemption song is coming. It's at hand. The advent of our God is near. Movement four, stewards of the mysteries of God. The children's curriculum that we've used for many years at All Souls introduces our young ones to the season of Advent in this way. This is the season of Advent, the time we get ready to celebrate the mystery of Christmas, the time we are all on the way to Bethlehem. But who will show us the way? Each week offers a new answer to this question. And in one of the weeks, one of the first weeks leading up to Christmas, the answer is the prophets. 
Who will show us the way? The prophets. We say to the children, prophets listen to God so they can show us the way. As part of this liturgy, we light a candle, which we place along a felt road that we've laid out on the ground, leading to a little wooden model of Bethlehem. As we light the candle, we say, let us enjoy the light of the prophets. And the liturgy works. No matter how rowdy the kids are that day, those words almost always result in a moment of stillness and wonder. Advent joy. Today's answer to the question, who will show us the way, is our messianic messengers, Malachi, John, and Paul. Pausing for a brief moment to consider the messengers is instructive. One of the most noteworthy things about Malachi, John, and Paul is the way in which they seem to radically reject what the world around them values, but to do so in a way that shuttles attention away from themselves. Take Malachi. We really don't know that much about Malachi. The name just means my messenger. And some have even speculated that it may be more of a priestly title than a name. In other words, this prophet's voice and identity is entirely in service to the message. Then there's John the Baptist, who completely rejects what we might today refer to as cultural capital, preaching in the wilderness, looking and even eating more like an animal than the king's herald. And finally, we have the Apostle Paul, who finds his authority not in the values of the world, intelligence, strength, honor, comfort, leisure, safety, prestige, but in the foolishness of the cross. Paul writes, to the present hour we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. An unknown author named My Messenger, a wild man and the scum of the world, these strange figures are the ones showing us the way to Bethlehem this Advent season. But perhaps there's something fitting about this motley crew. The ways that they point ultimately takes the focus off themselves and redirects it toward the one who deserves all the glory. Malachi, John, and Paul know that they are only pointers. And as C.S. Lewis discovered in his search for joy, those who look too long at the pointers miss the point. This is a Lewis-heavy sermon. I apologize. <laughs> but he actually said something else that resonates with his concept of joy about how to read poetry. In response to critics who were reading poetry to learn about the personality of the author, Lewis wrote, the poet is not a man or woman who asks me to look at him. He is a man who says, look at that and points. The more I follow the pointing of his finger, the less I can possibly see of him. To see things as the poet sees them, the reader must share his consciousness and not attend to it. I must look where he looks and not turn around to face him. Take Craig Arnold, the poet who wrote Meditations on a Grapefruit. 
Arnold's story is really interesting. He mysteriously disappeared in Japan more than a decade ago while working on a book of poetry about volcanoes. He was hiking. When we learn such details, we might be tempted to try to learn more about Arnold's personality by looking for clues in meditations in a grapefruit. But for Lewis, when I read the poem, my main goal shouldn't be to learn about Arnold. Rather, I should be trying to see a grapefruit through Arnold's eyes, looking with him, not at him. Likewise, the ultimate message of our messengers isn't, look at me pointing. Paul says that he too is subject to judgment. It's not look at me pointing, but behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Somewhat paradoxically, it's precisely by pointing away from themselves and at Jesus Christ that these three messengers most fully embody the gospel message and thus serve as models for us to imitate. It's how Paul can say, I'm your father, imitate me. In Malachi, John, and Paul, we find examples in which the postures of the messengers, unknown, wild, scum of the earth, seem to be aligned with the substance of the message, Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. One lesson is this. When the content of the good news is the incarnation and the crucifixion, the manner in which you present that good news ought to embody self-giving love. Perhaps this is part of what it means to be stewards of the mysteries of God, as Paul puts it. Not only to preach Christ crucified, but also to live out the foolishness of the cross. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Let us enjoy the light of the prophets and apostles. Movement five, an Advent blessing. By way of conclusion, I'd like to offer you a blessing. Let's pray. May you, may we all know joy this Advent, the joy of Advent. May we be caretakers of deep longings for endless summers for those whom we love, for the beauty and wonder of ordinary moments like peeling a grapefruit. May our longings point to the source and end of all things. You, the very center of human history. You, the one who are redeeming, who is rede redeeming us and coming to reconcile heaven and earth. And may you teach us how to be stewards of your mysteries, who show your self-giving love to the world. Joy to the world. The Lord is coming. Let earth receive her king. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.